Hello, welcome to Bookworms. I'm your host, Alex, and with me, as always, is my fantastic brother, the oldest first of his kind, Joe. Hello. How you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine, thanks. You look a little tired. <laughs> yeah, we gotta, uh, we gotta, gotta do this earlier in the morning or something like that. After a long day of doing nothing, and then I have to come here and do something, and it's just the worst. So, how about Alex, you tell us what we're doing here today. So, Bookworms is a book review podcast where Joe and I, we will uh, we'll read a book, we'll get together, and then talk about that book. And why are we doing this, instead of, you know, listening to the thousands of others of podcasts? do the same thing uh, because they don't read good books like we do that is we, true we read the absolute best if you want garbage recommendations from garbage podcasts listen to those other guys because we're fantastic and you're going to love every single book that we choose so these are going to be 16 books that we have chosen 14 are books that we absolutely love and two that we don't love so much and as you heard last month the first book we are going to do is Anansi Boys by Neil Gaiman so Alex why did you pick this book yeah so this is one of my selections I picked it for a number of reasons number one is I am a big fan of the author Uh, so Neil Gaiman is he's probably one of the most famous authors of his generation Definitely one of the most famous living authors. Yes. He's been writing since the late 80s. Uh, he's very well known for the Sandman comic books. Was his first big claim to fame. He did Good Omens with Terry Pratchett. Uh, his books, American Gods, Stardust, Ocean at the End of the Lane, The Graveyard Book. They're all, they've all been massive hits. Many turn into movies or TV shows. What do, you, what do you think the best uh, Neil Gaiman adaptation is, and why is it Good Omens? <laughs> I don't know. American Gods is up there, too. But Good Omens is easily my favorite book, and, I mean, that show is, wow. It was a lot of fun. Anytime you want to see David Tennant dressed like a English nanny. <laughs> well, that's Good Omens. We Maybe someday uh, we'll read that one. But today we're doing Anansi Boys. So, uh, if you're unfamiliar with this book, it came out in 2005. It is a loose sequel to American Gods. And how is it a loose sequel? Is it tied to it, or is it just something that it's like an offshoot? The only thing it really has in common with American Gods is the character Anansi appears in both. The tones of the book are very different. There's uh, an entirely original story with very different characters. Uh, So yeah, the only thing that uh, those two have in common is the one character. However, uh, I like this one for a number of reasons. It's almost entirely just straight comedy. Uh, Neil Gaiman likes to incorporate a lot of different literary styles. He'll he'll be very dramatic. He incorporates a lot of humor. It gets very into like mysticality and in fantasy this one is just straight up comedic fantasy lots of uh, family-based humor and yes it's his i found it i find it to be his funniest book 
It's also really one of the few books he has left that has not gotten the Hollywood treatment. It's not adapted into television or film. And honestly, I think that's kind of a crime because it's, it's a very fun book. And I think it would translate very well onto, uh, onto the screen. I, I would watch it anyway. Okay, so yeah. We'll start off with reading the back of the book to let people know what it's about. We're operating off of different editions here, so uh, we'll see who has the better back of the book description. So, when Fat Charlie's dad names something, it stuck. Like calling Fat Charlie, Fat Charlie. Even now, 20 years later, Charlie and Nancy can't shake that name. One of the many embarrassing gifts his father bestowed. Before he dropped dead on a karaoke stage and ruined Fat Charlie's life. Because Mr. Nancy left Fat Charlie things. Things. Like the stranger who shows up on Charlie's doorstep. Who appears to be the brother he never knew. And all of a sudden, life starts getting very interesting for Fat Charlie. Neil Gaiman journeys deep into myth to bring us a tale playful, profound, and rife with mayhem and mischief. An audacious and inspired story of family, luck, deceit, and an unusual legacy that illuminates the divine in our humanity. Not to mention a lime. Okay, so your, your book description was better than mine. Mine's a lot shorter and uh, basically covers less than half that, so I won't even read it. So first things first, we're going to quickly give our thoughts on the book. I'll, I'll go first if that's all right. Fine. Yeah, I know you're jealous to be first for something. Whatever. I'm still the favorite. All right. So my thoughts on the book, uh, if you haven't been able to tell already, is I love it. I, I think it is probably one of Gaiman's top five works. He's, it's very hard to choose what my favorite Neil Gaiman story is because he's a very enjoyable writer. He's, he's got a very special way with words, and that's one of the reasons he just really stands out as a writer. Anansi Boys is easily his funniest book. Um, he might uh, he when he writes for TV and things like that. Um, you know, those those are also pretty good. But I just really enjoyed reading this story. And I was, you know, laughing out loud in parts. Uh, there's all these cases of mistaken identity and double entendre, and uh, just the main character Charlie getting caught in embarrassing situations and not knowing how to get out of them, and just looking like an absolute fool. Uh, that it's there's plenty there to keep you engaged. And at the same time, there's a great storyline flowing through it, with all these uh, these these fun things happening, like uh, his father dying, very fun, and meeting his brother, and then his brother stealing his girl, and then Charlie has to find a way to banish his brother. Then he find he does it just in a just a terrible way, and he has to fix that, and it all comes down to him trying to fight mythological beasts that are trying to reclaim stories from his father who he finds out throughout this uh, during the story that is a is a god and so there's it's it's very wild it's very fun everything's funny about it even some of the dramatic parts have humor coursing throughout it 
Uh, so I, I could keep gushing about it if I, if you really wanted me to. But I, I want to hear what you think about it, Joe. Well, quite honestly, it is a good book. Not one of my favorites. You know, Definitely a four out of five stars, if I had to say, which for Neil Gaiman is kind of low. His American God books, um, his uh, Graveyard book, uh, Sandman series, uh, Neverwhere, they, they were all better in a way. This book seems to be lacking something. I can't really say what it is, but compared to all of his other writings, it just doesn't have that same power behind it. American Gods is a giant epic of a saga following Norse gods along with a lot of other gods through the American um, not dream but you know failed dream I guess Neverwhere the underbelly of London and a um, in an Alice in Wonderland style story, uh, you know, graveyard book, uh, Ocean at the End of the Lane, being great, just children's stories, even though they're not really made for children. Though my children did seem to enjoy them to some extent. Yeah, I think yeah. a graveyard book and Ocean at the End of the Lane were described as books for all ages. Yeah. That and Coraline, you know, the the children definitely love to be terrified of that one. <laughs> but you know, again, all those books, you know, have a definite high place in my heart, and this one is just not quite there. It's funny, it's intriguing, it draws you in. Just not my top choice for this author. Well, you're wrong. What's new? <laughs> now, I see some of your points there. I mean, kind of listing off all of his books like that. It, it, he has just kind of banger after banger. He's, yeah, I mean, he's a know, great and writer. That, and that's not even mentioning uh, Good Omens with Terry Pratchett, who's by far my probably favorite author of all time. And that book is just hilarious. And, you know, so this book, you know, without Pratchett putting in his humor, you know, when you stand them side by side, just isn't quite, it's at the same level. It's still good, just not epic. Yeah, I'd say it's, I would, I would disagree on the uh, epic part. I mean, it's almost like a mini epic, which is an oxymoron. Uh, so Kind of like, like you. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, American hey, God. Don't you dare edit that out. <laughs> Uh, American Gods is this big sprawling epic and it's very detailed and it's a fabulous book uh, this one it pulls way back on the details the amount of characters the, uh, the motivations of the villains uh, and has a much more smaller concise story however it does still have that growth and of the characters uh, every character has their own arc and by the end of the story they're different people, except for except for Graham Coates, who just kind of makes things worse for himself as everything goes along. Yeah, 
So uh, let's hop into it, and we're going to start with who is Anansi. And you know, just as a little side here, uh, it's called it's, it's pronounced Anansi or Anansi. Uh, just know that we're a couple of white boys from New England that slur our words a little bit, so sometimes it won't, or the pronunciation won't be quite there. We apologize. Yeah, there there are some terms in the book that are hard to pronounce, so we're doing our best. You'll have to bear with us. So, who is a Nazi? Do you, should we start with who is a Nazi in the book, or who is a Nazi in the great pantheon of religion let's and mythology? A, let's start with a pantheon of African mythology. Okay, so Nazi is what's known as a trickster. Um, he's probably he's probably the second best known trickster in the world. I would I would Third. say. Third. You think third? Yeah. Oh. I put I put I put Loki coyote. above him. Coyote. Oh, yeah, I guess coyote. Who would you put it? I put I put Loki first. He's yeah, yeah, Loki's like, first. Especially with like all the Marvel movies, everyone knows who Loki is, even though that's a bitch version of Loki. And uh, I mean, in America, anyways, Coyote is very well known in American uh, native mythology, American folklore. Um, yeah, I would see that. Um, so, going back to Anansi, though, well, the second or third, he's still one of the great tricksters. He's a so a trickster. Uh, for those of you who don't know a lot about uh, ancient <laughs> mythology, um, a trickster is a god or a demigod that is generally weaker than all the other gods. Uh, that would that forces them to rely on wit and cunning to be able to survive in an, uh, in a world where otherwise strength is king. So Anansi, hundreds and hundreds of stories about him, and he likes to living up to his name as a trickster. He likes to play tricks on the other animals because they're strong, but they're dim-witted, and he's so much more intelligent than they are. Sometimes his plans work out great. Sometimes he gets himself into a ton of trouble. Sometimes he flat out dies. Uh, he always comes back, though. And just to say this, uh, Anansi is you know, from the region in Africa, Ghana. You know, when we say African mythology, you know, Africa is a very big old place with many different levels and locations of mythology so there's, there's thousands of cultures and subcultures yeah. within africa but you know this is you know one of the more popularized especially in the uk and america due to the slave trade and bringing a lot of uh, africans from that region into these countries and even in the uh, american gods tv show like the first time we meet a nazi in that in the first season, he is uh, it's shown as a flashback where he's leading slaves on a slave ship uh, in a revolt against uh, their captors. So in the story, you know, kind of who is a Nazi and how big of a part of the story is he? So a Nazi is Fat Charlie's father. We don't find that out right away, but I mean, the book's called A Nazi Boys. It's it's pretty obvious who. Mr. Nancy is. He plays probably the most important role in the book, even though he dies on page two. His Fat Charlie, the book starts with him. He's engaged to be married to Rosie, and he's 
trying to contend with like his relationship with his father has really defined who he is as an adult uh, he's estranged from his father um, he only found out he was dead because um, his neighbor had to do a long distance call from Florida to England to be able to reach him uh, however like he's constantly embarrassed by his father's actions uh, like the back of the book says like Anansi gave Charlie the, the nickname Fat Charlie which is a name he's never been able to escape even though he's not that fat though so he is a little chubby at least it's hinted at and he was definitely a chubby child but yeah this is definitely a book about Anansi's children and you know they're you know growing up even though they're already adults and figuring out their place in the world as demigods Fat Charlie does not know that he's a demigod. Uh, however, his brother Spider is very well aware of it and uses it to uses all those trickster abilities to cheat and manipulate his way into whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. That's one thing I also like about this book is that kind of family dynamic, uh, which is on on this godlike level, because it's still brotherly fights like as cheap as they always are as we can attest to. Yeah. They, yeah, I mean, they only knew each know each other for a couple of days throughout the span of the book, and yeah, they get into fights, they bicker, they argue, and it, I think it, in in the end, it all boils down to them trying to reconcile their relationships with their father and come to terms with things that he was good at, things that he failed at. So why is Fat Charlie feeling a constant shame, even though nothing shameful happens to him? I mean, we, we know that Anansi likes to play tricks on him and whatnot, but there's never any time where it's malicious or you know anything that you know a common person would feel true shame out of, but Charlie is constantly mortified about. I can think of probably two reasons that he feels that constant shame and embarrassment like throughout the book like it's it's clearly stated you know fat charlie hates being embarrassed he goes to great lengths to avoid it um for example like he only has the entry-level jobs that he never stays at for more than two years and he keeps you know maintains a low profile he's got very few friends um he avoids singing whenever he can a lot of it too is he's just naive and gullible when his father would say hey you know like the president joke where he told uh, Nancy told Fat Charlie that there's a on President's Day everyone would dress up as their favorite president in school and whoever got the best costume won a prize and who did Charlie go as? dresses up like Taft (laughs) something about getting stuck in a bathtub I guess yeah. And, yeah. and then there's the, the kind of the, the thing where his father talks about, you know, the mermaid on the beach and how Charlie believes that there's a mermaid and then as always feels like a fool when there is no mermaid. Yeah. And we find out eventually that it all boils down to the fact that Anansi and his brother, Spider, are not Anansi, uh, Charlie and his brother Spider are the same person separated into two people and 
spider inherited all the confidence and the godlike abilities and uh, the charm, whereas Charlie is all of the apprehension and the shame and the embarrassment, a lot more of the negative aspects. Yeah, I guess so. We can jump into why were they split? Why were the personalities split into two people? Uh, they pissed off their neighbor. Uh, they broke something in their neighbor's yard, and she was a powerful witch, and she pulled out everything she didn't like about Charlie and made another person out of him, which was Spider, and then sent him to live elsewhere. Yeah. And this witch-like person is accompanied by is it three other old ladies that very much resemble your typical witches in these stories like Macbeth or the fates they call them yeah where they are very all-knowing very all-powerful they almost exist outside the story they know what's going to happen when it's going to happen how it's going to happen even though these ones are kind of more goofy about it and more haphazard in their spell making and tips to fat charlie yeah, they're portrayed as like the generic old southern lady who's you know, ma- you know cooking up a storm and, and you know force you know having feasts and talking about um, ger- making geriatric jokes. Uh, another important thing with the book that is important to talk about: uh, what does character race have to do with the story? Why is it important? As we you know, said earlier, this is based in African myth. And in the story, all the characters are black unless otherwise mentioned. Where, you know, in reading an interview from Neil Gaiman, where he answers this question, he says that essentially, in most books, since you know, our cultures in this part of the Western world are typically white-centric, they do the opposite. You know, the characters automatically assumed as white, and if they're different, the author will write that in. So he was going to turn that trope on its head and, you know, base it off of, you know, as if the, not as if, but as the blacks, you know, culture being the dominant one. And as we we learn pretty quickly uh, Graham Coates, who is the the villain of the story. I believe you have a good quote of his description, Alex. Oh, yes. Yeah, Graham Coates is described as an albino ferret in an expensive suit. So some good comedy there and some good imagery. Yeah, I mean, for me, like you can read the book. I mean, it's, it's very... They never really directly state the race of any of the characters you it's just kind of expected that you know that these characters are going to be black uh, these stories origin or the character anansi originates in africa and therefore you know uh if you're an educated person at all you'd probably be able to safely assume the character's races i i really didn't feel that overall um, beyond the fact that you know race is an important thing to a lot of people, a lot of people take pride in their history and all that. Um, I mean, and like for me, having 
reread this book after reading that interview, it was definitely something where I kept finding myself picturing maybe not Fat Charlie or Anansi, but a lot of the other characters as more white, you know, centric, and, you know, then having to kind of go back in my head and definitely change their appearances to more fit, you know, what would be expected if it was an all-African-American or African-English uh, cast. And, you know, it was definitely a fun and interesting exercise to force myself not to you know picture people and you know my biased idealistic visions of characters and you know look at it from someone else's point of view yeah you often picture characters being either the race of the author or your own race so yes it is it is fun to watch another perspective being told so uh, another question I pulled off the interwebs great show prep what does the author mean when he talks about a woman having the hysterics so about where in the book was this do you remember so this was if I'm not mistaken around the talking about the circumstances of Anansi's death early in the book where he uh he dies doing karaoke trying to uh hit on a bunch of women that are a third of his age and then he just full-on just dies and falls on one lady Uh, i believe it was a bachelorette party (laughs) bachelorette party and they wind up uh, having hysterics in the bathroom because their night was uh, took a very sudden and shocking twist. Uh, so crying, un- inconsolable, all those things that you might associate with a woman having hysterics with. Uh, it does lead into a interesting conversation about how some of the women are treated in this book by uh, both Anansi and Spider. Where they're treated almost as commodities rather than actual people. Because like Spider, throughout the especially the early parts of the book, uh, he treats like the male characters like they don't really matter, and he is constantly pursuing, uh, especially Rosie. But even on the night of Wine, Women, and Song that he and Charlie go out on to, into, he chooses women that are, you know they're, they're the most fun. They're they're cool to hang out with. Yeah, the party it, girls. Yeah, the party girls. Uh, nothing wrong with that. However, he also kind of, he does some very questionable things. Yeah, objectifies them. Yeah, he objectifies them. He uh, uses his powers to manipulate Rosie into thinking he's Charlie and then sleeps with her. So yeah, let's get a little bit more into the, the two main females in the, the story, Rosie and Daisy. And as I got to point out to my brother who is so good at uh finding things but miss this i'm not a biologist okay they're both flowers and in particular roses are kind of thorny even though you know considered traditionally beautiful which matches kind of the rosy of this book and then daisy who while usually less attractive than the fancy flowers like roses are still kind of cute and fun. 
but don't, and then you're more common, but they they don't sting you. So I, you know, which kind of, you know, even though Daisy we find out is a cop and is now trying to figure out, you know, what crimes Charlie may or may have not committed, she at no point is ever thorny or you know stinky or any of those other characteristics that some flowers can you know have to ruin one's day yeah whereas rosie is very controlling in a relationship with charlie she has a she's you know waiting till marriage before they consummate their relationship she's very nice however she she really has no feelings for Charlie yeah. other than yeah, getting good. back at her mother. Yeah, her mother is uh, very thorny, very yeah. controlling. Yeah. So there's some fun uh, mother-in-law humor throughout the book, kind of describing her relationship with Charlie. Rosie does end up becoming, I guess, a victim of Spider's manipulations. She eventually, he eventually falls in love with her. Um, and comes clean to her, which she breaks up with him, uh, which you know w- would be expected. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah I mean, if you lied to a woman about your complete identity, I mean, wouldn't you, you expect her to be a little pissed off? I don't know. I'm married, so <laughs> I can I can bow out of these. Um, it, it, it's called uh, True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, that just mentioning that put everything into perspective now. <laughs> so, uh, like Rosie does end up getting back together with Spider at the end. Is his kind of redemption arc with her? Is it earned? Or because that's a huge, yeah, it's a huge breach of trust. You're using magic to manipulate someone into you know, bending to your will. I mean, you know, going to the the end, you can kind of also see Charlie and Spider flipping roles where, you know, Charlie was the banal, bland, kind of, you know, chubby nobody, uh, where, and Spider was the, the playboy. It, you know, by the end, Charlie becomes the, you know, jazz singer, you skinny, almost like his father type personality and spider becomes what was he become at the end he, uh, he becomes a restaurateur yeah yeah i wouldn't say they fully flip they become closer to each other yeah, i mean it's definitely more balanced mm-hmm. but it's because yeah, like but but they, they, they definitely flip you know the, the coin you know n- you know maybe not to the extreme that you know making it sound like but it's a, a definite flip and yeah. they, you know, they both become more balanced. That's yeah. that's the big thing. Because yeah. Charlie never really becomes a playboy, but he, yes, he becomes a confident jazz singer. When in the beginning of the book, he w- wouldn't even get up on stage and stand there. But yeah, he's he's still he's married with a child by the end of the book. Whereas you know, Spider's still maintaining some of that tricksterness, just where he's kind of refusing to have kids so he can piss off his mother-in-law. Uh, so let's yeah. talk about Graham Coates. A little bit. We you know, gotta talk we? about the bad guy. Yeah, we've been all this time about everything else, mm-hmm. and, and then after that, we'll talk about the namesake of the book. But let's, let's talk about yeah. the bad guy first. 
Yeah, so Graham is an interesting villain. Uh, he's one of the reasons I really like this book is because he's such a slimy worm of a human being. Uh, but his portrayal is done like he's he's probably one, also one of the funniest characters in the book, just because he's like he's so like weird and he says stupid things like absentively, uh, things that just like little things that irk yeah. you as a reader. And he uh, thinks he's here. so clever with everything and some mastermind uh, manipulation. Yeah, when in reality he's just uh, just another scuzzy guy who's embezzling from his own company and then he gets in way over his head and cuts and runs spider kind of catches him by accident and as you know while portraying himself as fat charlie and graham coates freaks out and starts pulling out before he's truly ready and in the process killing uh, another woman named Maeve and creating a whole other story arc there. Yeah, his uh, killing of Maeve definitely changes him changes him a little bit like he he was clearly ready to bug out whenever some uh, whenever the the shit hit the fan. You know Alex, I can't see your air quotes when you make them. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they were for me. <laughs> but yeah, he was he was ready to bug out when the shit hit the fan. He was, you know, he was he had all his money stored away in the in the private accounts, and he's had to all he had to do was pick up a bag and leave, and he was gone forever. And then also the killing of Maeve kind of connects him to the uh, immaterial world, the the uh, mythological world that Spider is more a part of, and Anansi is more a part of, where you get the uh, pantheons, where you have you know, Spider and monkey bird and the big one tiger yeah which that act of aggressive violence i mean he kills a woman with a hammer that act of strength and violence and heartlessness does open him up to tiger who comes in and they end up merging together into one person yeah and tiger and spider have their fight where charlie and uh, Graham have their fight, and it really takes, ends up being Rosie, uh, Rosie's mom especially, and M- Maeve's ghost to have to be able to cross that bridge between the two of them to break them apart again. Or not so much break them apart, but to defeat the, the combination. You know, in, instead of just the brothers combining, they, they needed further outside help, even though they're never fully aware of that extra help yeah there's that whole bit where rosie and her mother get kidnapped but uh, they go on a cruise and they go to an island and that find out coincidentally that's where graham Coates has run off to uh, and he kidnaps them and stores them in his meat locker and all that happens without spider or charlie knowing anything about it because they're so busy trying to well charlie's busy trying to find He's trying to find his neighbor, who's on the island as well, and Spider's been captured by Tiger, and they're battling in the mythical realm. And the whole time, like Tiger's coming together with Graham Coates and taking on an earthly appearance using that albino ferret. Yeah, and I mean the whole 
thing of them meeting up. There's that theory of there's only you only ever truly meet 500 people in your life, and you just continually run into those 500 people. So it's kind of a play off of that little ethos. Um, and then you also have the other you know minor bad guy, which is Bird, who uses comical ways to try to kill or haunt Spider. Yeah, that was one of my uh, favorite bits in the book, was uh, it's almost like when the tides start to turn between Charlie and Spider's relationship, they make up for their indiscretions towards each other while they're being constantly attacked by birds and Spider has to transport them from place to place. Like they go to the desert, and they get attacked by vultures. They go, they transport themselves to Antarctica. They get attacked by penguins. Uh, they go to Paris and are attacked by pigeons. And they wind up in a in like a coal mine somewhere in the middle of nowhere to get away from it all. And like during that time, they're bonding together. And the whole idea of bird was to you know harassing Spider and Charlie was uh, for to make Tiger regain his confidence because he had been so humiliated by Spider or by Anansi so many times that he had lost his gumption, his ability to you know do violence without thought. And that kind of gets us into our question leading back to Anansi and and Tiger, if Anansi owns these stories, and if he stole Tiger's stories, is that a parable that the modern age has shifted from brute strength to smarts? Well, you being question. a you, you being a brainiac and <laughs> not very uh, strong, like yeah. your brother who is uh, both. Didn't talk about Brian like that. <laughs> um, I think now that we've jumped all around the book. We've talked about the ending. I think it's that question can we can open up the beginning. I want to read the first few paragraphs. That's all right. Uh, I, I suppose. Okay. So read chapter one. God. What? Read it good. I'm the best reader. I'm a librarian. I can read. You can read all the big words. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> In your. It began. <laughs> it begins as most things begin with a song in the beginning after all were the words and they came with a tune that was how the world was made how the void was divided how the lands and the stars and the dreams and the little gods and the animals how all of them came into the world they were sung the great beasts were sung into existence after the singer had done with the planets and the hills and the trees and the oceans and the lesser beasts, the cliffs that bound existence were sung, and the hunting grounds and the dark, songs remain, they last. The right song can turn an emperor into a laughingstock, can bring down dynasties. A song can last long after the events and the people in it are dust and dreams and gone. That is the power of songs. So I want to read that because it really sums up why Anansi is able to defeat Tiger so often. Because the power of your words, the power of song, it's stronger than 
any amount of muscle that you can muster. Uh, like it turns an emperor into a laughingstock. So Tiger was this fierce emperor. He was the king of his domain. And an, this little spider comes along and just through wit and cunning and intelligence dethrones that great beast and steals all those stories and claims them for his own. And throughout the book we get a Nazi stories where he is outwitting Tiger and making him a fool. We also get stories where Anansi loses because his cunning is too far above his own means or you know, he gets too greedy and thus he gets killed or made a fool of. But at the same time, he doesn't seem to be affected by those defeats as someone like Tiger is. You know, where Tiger is needing to show dominance all the time or else he's lost all his power. Anansi can say, yeah, I still made a fool out of you in the process of my dying. Yeah, and like at the end of the book, like Anansi's still dead, but he, it shows him in his coffin. He's just like, eh, you know, that's fine. I'll just hang out for like 25 years or so, and then I'll come back. Like he doesn't mind losing. He doesn't mind dying. He's just always thinking up new tricks. And whether they work or whether they don't, he still has fun. He still gets that story that he can tell. Even if he loses, he's never defeated. Whereas Tiger, he's all he's got is brute strength. And if he doesn't have that, then he is lost. Yeah, and you can kind of see this tied into the development of the world throughout history, where in ancient history it was always by strength of arms and brutality to stay in control of the people, where in more modern times, in the last even just 300 years, it's been more and more battling people with your own wits, you know, more and more wits, more and more uh, verbal sparring than actual physical sparring. It's become more of a chess match than all-out war. Whereas, like, even in ancient times before humans weren't on top of the food chain, we as a species have gotten weaker as we've as time has gone on. Uh, how are we even back then when you know humans were very much stronger? We were still some of the weaker creatures in the world, and we had to use our brains to find ways to survive. That's why we developed tools. Uh, we built shelters. We find ways to camouflage ourselves and develop clothing to protect us from the sun all these survival tools this wit and cunning that other animals don't have we do and also the spider stories provide hope it's saying you know that a small eats to busy spider can take on something like a tiger that a spider bite can take down the mighty emperor of the jungle the the man-eater, the, the thing that rules all. And you know, something that you know, can be stepped on without thought can still still kill, and it's just a matter of... and it still ensnare you in its web. And it's just a matter of outwitting you know, those that think they're invincible. Yeah, going back to that whole, like, lost but never defeated, there's that, like... There's that uh, old... A dodge like you're never more than twelve feet away from a spider at any given moment, whereas I mean, now 
I don't know where the nearest tiger is for me, but it's probably not 12 feet away. It's about three. Oh, God. <laughs> Why you never see tigers hiding in trees? They're so good at it. Getting to some of the themes, the opening paragraphs that I read introduces that theme right away of song. And song plays an incredibly important role throughout this story. It's how... It's how Anansi and his boys create the magic. So yeah, it's how yeah, it's how Spider, you know, when he takes Charlie out, it's how he impresses all the women by, you know, going on to karaoke night and singing under the boardwalk. It's how It's how Fat Charlie creates the narrative to beat the gods. Yeah. Yeah, when him and Spider at the end of the story, you know, they go into the god realm and they sing their story to the gods. That's how they win them over and how they manage to banish Tiger into his cave again. And there's also the theme of, I guess Spider kind of sums it up with, like we, we had song already, but when he goes out to with Charlie, he wants a night of wine, women, and song. So there's also that theme of wine, which pops up throughout the book, where a lot of characters do questionable things while drinking wine. For example, Anansi's neighbor, when Charlie's visiting her, she's drunk on wine and she reveals to Charlie that his father was a god. And then Charlie, drunk on wine, summons his brother to come to him by talking to a spider that he sees in his bathtub. And then Graham Coates gets drunk on wine while he's got... Rosie and her mother stored away in his meat closet. He decides while he's drunk, all right, it's time to go kill them. And that, and you know, he's drunk with a gun, and that kind of leads to him inevitably losing uh, be, because they manage to disarm him and get away. Yeah. So, what is the joke with the lime, though? I mean, it was in the book description I read at the very beginning. Yeah, that was, uh, that was one of the more intriguing jokes. Intriguing? So, Yes. Really? Intriguing. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird because it doesn't really play out very well, but it's still very funny to read because it's when Charlie goes to uh, the island to try and find his neighbor who's vacationing there. And when he lands, someone gives him a line. And he becomes known as the man with the line. Yeah. And so he's asking around, have you seen this woman? Have you seen this woman? Have you seen this woman? And everyone he asks responds with the question, are you the guy with the lime? And it goes back to talking about how those old women are just witches and know, and are they know the story, they know how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and they have control over aspects of the story. So that's why every like she told... Everyone on the island, that he's the guy with the lime. If you see a guy with the lime asking about my whereabouts, you can tell him because he's the guy with the lime. Of course, he's never he never thinks to bring the lime with him, so he makes his life much harder on himself. Okay, well, <clears throat> in that case, I guess we can start heading towards our final thoughts and conclusions, if you would like. Okay. I, mean, I know there's a lot more in the book that we could talk about, but we might be getting a little redundant, especially with all the jumping around and who's a what's it. As my wife uh, said, whenever you do these things, you need a thesis. 
which in you know the scientific world means a very different thing so I had a hard time understanding but you know the, the question I came up with for this book is why does this book matter I mean we kind of discussed some of other Neil Gaiman's other books that you know, well while me and Alex may disagree on the importance of them that you know like you know we did discuss American gods is this epic saga of American and European and New Age yes gods all over the world yeah and then you have Coraline which is you know a childhood's nightmare of moving to a new home and having to find her place in this new new world um you have uh neverwhere where you're discovering this new lands and the underside of the underbelly of uh of london you know so you know what makes this book so important that stands out so this book stood out to me for its humor i am also a i'm a huge fan of mythology in general um, I really like Norse mythology mostly. Uh, however, um, African mythology is also very fascinating to me as well. I uh, especially like Anansi as a character. Like I said, he's the second or third most famous trickster out there, but he's he's my favorite trickster. So any story about him, I love to I love to give it a read. It really plays well with those old stories of Anansi, incorporating them into the storytelling, whether it's directly telling an old Nazi story or incorporating elements from other Nazi stories into the main plot lines. It's very it's very entertaining and it's very I think important to keep those old tales alive because that is that's a chunk of human history right there wrapped up into a family comedy drama about coming to terms with you know, your father dying and not actually being able to reconcile your history with him. And beyond that, I mean, the characters, they're very intriguing. They're very entertaining. They're all deeply flawed, even the ones that are supposed to be perfect. Like, I don't know, Rosie was supposed to be this perfect person. Is she? I mean, she's very, sure, she's a very nice person. She's very kind. She's very sweet. But is she perfect? Absolutely not. Is Spider perfect? He's very far from it, even though he... I think if you ask Fat Charlie, Daisy's kind of perfect. <laughs> he does wind up with her at the end. Um, but yeah, they're all they're all deeply flawed. Should Spider have been forgiven at the end for what he did to Rosie? I mean, never, at the end it's Rosie's decision, but or is it you know the author kind of forcing forcing that to happen so that he can have a happy ending for every character? Um, it's... Oh, before you know, we forget, uh, we did mention mermaids. I know you uh, had a little thing at the end of the book about the mermaid. Oh yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I'm uh, on talk, talking about perfect endings. Yeah, talk about perfect endings. <laughs> yeah. So the the mermaid reference happens in within the first two chapters of the book, and it's a quick little you know blink and you miss it paragraph of a story, uh, but the book ends with charlie and his son talking to a mermaid the mermaid that he grew up talking to with his father Mm -hmm. who then he believed was always tricking him into believing in mermaids 
So he finds out his father wasn't just full of malicious tricks. It was partly his memory mm-hmm. that you know was also to blame. Yeah, and it goes well with the like like I said, none of the characters are perfect. They don't end perfect, but they all they all show growth. Rosie, Daisy, Rosie's mother, Spider, like they all do, and even a Nazi shows growth. Whereas, yeah. I'm making he, faces yeah. at Alex. Even, at Alex. Yeah. even though he's dead, I, <laughs> and um, and he's, he's still, just like, I'll be, I'll come back in yeah, twenty five yeah. years, fifty yeah. years, something, and just continue my tricks. Yeah. But even still, that last conversation that he has with Charlie, like it, it takes a lot to admit when you might have made mistakes, and like they know they don't have time to talk about it, but he does his best to show in his way that he really did care about his children. Yeah, and I guess my final thoughts on why this book matters is it's a little bit more abstract. You know, basically this book matters because it's an, a Nazi story. It's how you know people can overcome Tiger or just malicious evil. How that human predators are trying to send the the world into chaos, and you know if people come together, they can you know de- defeat that that evil. Where Tiger is chaos, and you know you could say the the modern world is that a guiding force towards perfect order. Anansi is that balance um, between the two that you need to be able to thrive as a, a people. Uh, without, if you're in total chaos, everyone's just so worried about looking in the shadows for the next thing that's going to come get them. But in a perfect world, there is no growth. You've, you know, you've already feel like you've reached that pinnacle, and there's no more uh, going forth in the world or, you know, taking risks. And you know, Fat Charlie's stuck in that. Was stuck in that order. You know, he felt like. You know, even though he's just spinning his wheels, that there was nothing else to the world that he could enjoy, and you know, where you know, Spider could be kind of that that chaos of you know, just living moment to moment and not caring, and you know, how again, you know, their their father or Nazi had to you know bring them to that that balance through his mischief and through you know messing with Tiger again to make it so both of them could could grow and i think that's you know a good message to you know you know people it's like hey you, you 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 can't just be a leaf in the wind and blowing wherever it blows you or getting yourself into all sorts of trouble but at the same time you know having your life completely structured isn't good for you either going up onto stage and singing karaoke you know, may seem terrifying, but it's pretty insubstantial, but at the same time could have major good repercussions of self-confidence. Yeah, uh, like, I think karaoke is a, was a good idea for the that aspect of the story because it is something that, like, even if you suck at singing and... Uh, you just get up there and embarrass yourself. Like everyone's having a good time. It's yeah, fine. No, no one really cares if you're terrible because they know if they go when they go up there, they're probably going to be just as bad. Yeah. Whereas like Charlie had that crippling fear of embarrassment and he couldn't do it. Yeah. 
even though he was probably one of the best singers that could have ever sang. So that is Anansi Boys. I hope our uh, conversation of the story was interesting or entertaining, or at least all the stuff I said. You know, if you enjoyed it, like and subscribe to to us. And if you want to reach out to us, we have an email. It is kendallbookworms at gmail.com. That's K-E-N-D-A-L-L-B-O-O-K-W-O-R-M-S at gmail.com. Remember, two L's. Everyone always forgets the second L. Yeah. So if you want to talk to us at all or, you know, leave a, you know, contact us directly, go for it. Please be kind or attempt to be kind. Alex is awfully uh, sensitive. Yeah, be nice to me. You can be mean to each other. Yeah, I got I got thicker skin. Better looks too. So, what's going to be our next book? Our next book is going to be the coldest girl in Cold Town by Holly Black. This is going to be my pick and definitely one of my favorite books, especially in the vampire genre. Yeah, if you like books that kind of subvert the teen vampire stories, uh, this will be this will be a good one to check out. Yeah. It's a, it's a YA, a little bit longer than Anansi Boys, but a quick and fun read. And you know, for someone like me who typically despises YA, this is definitely a awesome book. By a very talented author. Yeah, by a very talented, underrated author. So I can't wait to discuss this book with Alex next month. So until then... This has been Bookworms.